0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What's really behind the stories of flying objects in the Bible? Could outsiders, quote unquote, of some kind have been responsible for some of the stories recorded in the ancient Near East? Why do biblical scholars always seem to have German names? Okay, well, welcome to the 419th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm not Ben, who usually says this, uh, and those diverse questions came from me, Paul, Ben's dad. Now, Ben will call in if and when he can. Uh, now, I hate to do this because we've had this weekly contest for years, and it's popular, but despite the able ass- assistance of the staff here at the station... When I'm alone, I simply can't handle the calls, the script, and the guest at the same time. When Ben is here on Monday holidays, and when his semester ends in May, this, the contest will resume. Although we, uh, I have been told I will have a producer if I need one, so maybe we can resume it. But not tonight. Anyway, uh, Ben, as uh, you may know, is uh, having some trouble with his Monday, not trouble with his, trouble getting to the show here on Mondays because he is now in Boston at uh, Emerson College studying broadcasting and uh, is on the way home in the train, and will call in to the show when he can. So hopefully he'll be calling in tonight with some questions. Anyway, we will review last week's question. In what town in Maine would you find the old rocking chair that seems to create hauntings whenever it's turned upside down? Uh, actually, we were surprised that anyone answered that question correctly, because this case is little known. But Tammy Tavares from Mansfield, Massachusetts, nailed it. From right there in the heart of the lovely Bridgewater Triangle, so-called. So let's move on to our distinguished guest. Uh, And the answer, of course, was South Paris, Maine. Dr. Michael S. Heiser is a scholar in the fields of biblical studies and the ancient Near East. He is the academic editor of Logos Bible Software. He earned his master's and doctoral degrees in Hebrew, Bible, and Semitic languages at the uh, University of Wisconsin, Madison in 2004. He also holds a master's in ancient history from the University of Pennsylvania with concentrations in ancient Israel and Egypt. Mike's main research interests are Israelite religion, especially Israel's divine council, as it's called in the Psalms, a fascinating biblical reference that I'm sure will come up to will come up tonight. Uh, biblical theology, ancient Near Eastern religion, biblical and, anti- and ancient Semitic languages, and more. He maintains three blogs: NakedBible.com about biblical studies, paleobabel.com, dealing with weird beliefs about antiquity, such as might come up on this show and com about how belief in uh, extraterrestrials intersects with religion. Uh, Mike teaches ancient languages online at MEMRA, the online institute for ancient languages. He's a busy guy. Uh, Michael is the author of The Facade, which is a novel, and published last year, I believe, The Facade Special Edition. Dr. Michael Heiser, welcome to Behind the Paranormal.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul.
0: Okay, uh, Mr. Producer... There we go. Okay, very Can you good. Hear me? Yeah, I, that, that's good. That's good. Okay, uh, Michael, I have to tell you first, I read the facade several years ago, and I must say that I enjoyed it immensely. And I've been a professional book editor, so I don't give compliments like that lightly. So it's a pleasure oh, to, you sh- you. to be speaking with you. Okay.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad you uh, enjoyed
0: it. Oh, it was great. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there were rumors of a uh, of a sequel. Is is that the special, <laughs> the, the director's cut, so to speak? Is the is that the sequel or what?
1: Well, no, the, the special edition is the, is a newly edited version of the facade and it has some additional content. Uh, part of the additional content is at the end, there are the first five chapters of the sequel. I'm working on the sequel right
0: now. Ah, so that's, okay.
1: that's part of what makes the special edition special. There's bibliography in there, new annotated bibliography, there's sort of the story of how the facade came to be. and. All that sort of thing,
0: too. Very good. Okay. I'll give you a chance to uh, talk more about it later. Uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's begin with a sort of inverted pyramid here. Start big and then get into the details. In my most recent book, published in 06, I noted at least 360 different examples in the Bible alone of some kind of flying craft or shape or something, ascending, descending, hovering, or just flying, sometimes at great speeds. And that doesn't include such references in the Atrahasis, the Karsag epics, and other documents contemporary with early parts of the Bible. So what is your opinion of the work of those from Eric von Däniken on down who are convinced that many, if not all, of these references refer to the action of extraterrestrials, or at least a group of people from somewhere or someone else?
1: Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really think much of uh, von Däniken's efforts there, or Zechariah Sitchin's I mean, I'd have to see your list because I don't, I don't, uh, I can't think of any, you know, flying craft uh, in in the Bible other than things like, you know, the chariot, the fire, and things like that. But uh, the the biblical writers, I mean, had words for disc and for silver and for round and dome and all these things. And, you know, what they describe when they talk about flying chariots are things like chariots and horses and flames. Uh, You know, you'd have to really You'd have to assume that what they were looking at was not what we would think of uh, as a UFO or, or, or something like that. And you know, same thing for the first chapter of Ezekiel. The vocabulary you know that we would expect, again, some some kind of round disc-shaped thing, uh, actually isn't there. It's a chair with wheels. And, and you know, we sort of know what what he was writing about because we have pictures, you know, from the ancient Near East, ancient. Uh, iconography that you know conforms to the description that Ezekiel gives us, and so I don't really think a whole lot of what's you know speculated by by von Daniken and others. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, what,
0: why? You know, I, I always all through the seminary and everything, I, I always wondered why is it always the sky gods? And not just Christians yeah. and Jews, but just about everybody. Why? Why? I don't know the Dogon from the Dogon people all the way down to everybody. Why is it always the sky gods? Why the sky?
1: Because that's where humans don't live. <laughs> it's the same thing with.
0: No, yeah. really. It, no, no, no. You're right. I never thought of the, it that way.
1: With gods that come from the mountains or from the the ocean depths, uh, these, these are places where humans don't inhabit. They, they don't live there, and so you know we we live here on this thing we call Earth, this terrestrial realm, and so the. The gods must live somewhere else that, that removes them from humans, makes them remote, makes them, you know, other, transcendent or different, something that humans can't relate to or, or sort of get to. So it, it's, it's sort of a natural place to put them, uh, in, you know, from a culture that that's what they know. They don't know outer space, they don't know, you know, Things that that we sort of take for granted in our cosmological view of things in our view of the universe, but but they do know places where they can't get to, and where they don't live. I mean, it's not like today; people weren't going out and climbing Mount Everest in antiquity. They they didn't have the equipment for it. You know, so these, these places were, were were places that were were rarely even, uh, you know, ascended to, even you know, within miles, you know, of of, of uh, you know, an ancient person that was just doing you know foot travel, you know, without technology. So that, that's where the gods lived.
0: Okay, I, I suppose that's acceptable. You know, I've always thought, too, that we have like a million years of human history that is absolutely unknown, officially at least. And, you know, a thousand civilizations could have risen and fallen. Uh, are, are you a believer in the linear theory of human history or the cyclical theory? In other words, do you believe that We may have gone from stone tools to power tools more than once, as many cultures believe.
1: Well, I I think, I think technology tends to emerge as need is created. You know, the, the whole, you know, necessity is the mother of invention kind of thing. So I, I'm, I'm open to the idea that there would be quote unquote uh, advanced technology uh, at other times in the ancient world, but what that would look like, uh, I, I don't know. And, and I don't think we have to necessarily conclude that technology would have developed in the same way that that we experience it now. It, it, again, it's it's largely need driven and worldview driven, that that sort of thing. You know, why the human mind is going to apply. Its knowledge and and you know the skills of, of human beings in one direction or another. It, you know, it, it, there's a there's a certain amount of randomness to that and haphazardness. But I, I'll say this: that doesn't mean even if it, even if they never you know had a widespread use. Let's just say of electricity. Um, that doesn't mean that their technology was primitive because they're they're doing things that are hard for us to 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 figure out today. Uh, with the tools they had, you know, I mean, some incredible feats of engineering that, uh, you know, we can't look at them and, and sort of chuckle and say, well, you dunderheads, boy, you know, we're a whole lot smarter than you were. Yeah, you know, that's a big and mistake. Yeah, you know, they, they can look at us and say, okay, well, then you build that pyramid. Let, let's see how you do that, you know, because, I mean, we know how we would do it.
0: <laughs> exactly. Now, well, do fig- we?
1: Go figure that out. Yeah. Well, oh, I, think, I think the pyramids in, in megalithic architecture are largely well-known. The 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 popular perception is that you know scholars are just aghast and oh we have no idea how this was done and what a mystery and oh we're we're just you know so hopeless and that's the that's the popular impression. Yes, it is the the academic journal literature. You know the the stuff that scholars write for other scholars. There's all sorts of stuff on Egyptian engineering that that makes quite you know good sense. It's really it's really leverage and an applied counterweight. I don't know if you've ever seen. I'll give you an example here that that has sort of leaked down to the to the popular culture. Uh, the work of Jean Pierre Houdin, uh, the mm-hmm. French architect, to the right. latest pyramid theory. Mm-hmm. It's all leverage and counterweight, but it, it, it's perfectly doable with what they had, it, it, and it's scalable. Uh, it's, it's extraordinarily clever but it, it's basic applied physics but you know since our technology is so mechanized you know and we're, we're doing computer chips now and stuff like that we don't we often can't we either don't or we can't think of how to problem solve without that stuff whereas the Egyptians and other ancient peoples this is what they had and, and they they had mastered applied physical principles with the stuff they had and it it escapes us because we're, you know, we haven't had to use it for a couple hundred years. You know, we're off on some other trajectory, and so we look back on that and go, "Oh boy, you know, what in the world would we do?" And, you know, but there's plenty of Egyptian material where they they draw what they're doing. You know, the, the, there there are remnants of you know vestiges of their technology, how they measured things. You know, illustrations of weight and counterweight. I mean, it, it's it's really not that much of a mystery uh, in terms of the, the pyramids. I mean, there are other things that. That, that you could apply the same techniques to, but we don't actually know specifically whether the same techniques were used. But I mean, you could do it, but that doesn't mean we really know that that was how it was done.
0: Well, as you speak, I'm thinking of Thor Heyerdahl, and I, I believe he was the leader of a group uh, who, uh, you know, or Easter Island, and oh, the big mystery, how on earth did mm-hmm. they raise these? And somebody made the, the, the not unwise suggestion to ask the natives, who were descendants <laughs> of the original, you know, how, how did... Yeah. And they said, well, we could tell, we could have told you that 50 years if you'd asked us, yeah. you know. And they, they not only showed him, you know, they demonstrated. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and as you said, there were
1: places at Easter Island that, that you can see some of the, the figurines are actually still in situ. They, they, they were never, uh, completely exactly. done as far as how they were carved. And, and you know, the, there's no more trees on the island. And the speculation is because they were all used up because they were obsessed with making these figures and they used them as rollers and, so on and so forth mm-hmm. yeah you're right i mean i actually just saw a special about not too long ago on on easter island but yeah it's like why don't we ask some of those
0: guys yeah i mean
1: <laughs> maybe they would know something
0: you know that's that's a 21st century mind don't don't you know the obvious is not uh, not obvious um, right, let's if get I back can't
1: do this with a microchip then how exactly it, you
0: know? yeah we were drunk with technology anyway let's get back to flying things so what was the chariot that carried Elijah away and the, and the pillar in the desert uh, what was all that then
1: well, I think I think what they're describing these are typical ways of describing the uh, the divine presence again humans don't live in fire okay we don't live in clouds you know we don't have chariots that that go across the sky I mean the, the, there there are ways of describing the divine presence and where where the deity traverses, you know, where where he lives. And chances are, if the, if the deity lives somewhere, he, he goes from place to place and, you know, observes what's going on on Earth, so he has to travel. The whole idea of a chariot as opposed to again, a, a quote-unquote more advanced idea of, of omnipresence. You know, God just is where all these places are simultaneously. But I mean, the ancient mind thinks, well, he has to travel. Because we have to travel, so the gods must have to travel. And since they live up there, they travel up there. And so they're using modes of expression that humans used for travel, in the case of the chariot, and they're, they're transferring that up to the sky because, hey, they, he's got to get from point A to point B, doesn't he? You know, it, it, Again, it's a very... It's a very understandable second millennium BC way of describing how a deity would get from point A to point B. And they're using the vocabulary of the, of the earthbound mode of transportation. Horses, wheels, you know, in the case of Ezekiel, a throne seat that, you know, that would have been carried along or borne, you know, by animals or something like that. They're, they're, they're very time bound, very understandable ways of describing things the fire well hum- humans don't live in fire but the deity can well, that's no problem you know that, he's not like us he doesn't have a body he's not going to burn up he can appear as, in the form of a man but doesn't isn't consumed you know so again a, a lot of this is is to talk about and, and cast you know God uh, in an otherness way I mean he is not us we are not him there is a gulf fixed between us that can't be bridged uh, unless unless the deity descends or condescends to meet with us as we are this is by the way this is one of the reasons i think in the old testament that yahweh often does uh, appear in the form of of a man or, or an angelic man a divine man because god has a fundamental problem in in biblical theology actually he has two fundamental problems if i if i really showed up disembodied the way i am they wouldn't be able to process me with the five senses. And also if I showed up, they'd die. <laughs> so, you know, what are we gonna do? Well, we're gonna appear in flame. We're gonna appear as a human being. I'm gonna, I'm gonna veil myself with a cloud. Again, the, both in, in terms of, you know, where people are at you know, in their in their faith reception of things like the Bible, either either God is making these decisions for the benefit of humanity to help them process his presence and protect them, or this is the way that the biblical writer, you know, would have described things, again, to denote this otherness idea that God is not a man.
0: Okay, because that brings up other questions, uh, and I got a little a little bit of trouble when I asked this, not in trouble, but I was looked askance <laughs> at when I asked this in the seminary, but... It it just seems, stands to reason to me that, really, well, I've always thought that the paranormal is really the mother of both religion and science. Had there been no questions to answer, had there been no uh, mysteries to explain, neither would have been born, really, I don't think. Um, in in it put, that, And that's a, a rather simplistic approach, I understand. But in the seminar, I sort of thought, gee, well, you know, didn't, religion, or and I don't even like the term religion, it's not big enough to encompass uh, faith and, and God and things, but didn't it begin with human encounters with supernatural beings, or what they thought were supernatural beings, or what really were supernatural beings, and then the result was the shaman? And today, you may have mystics, but you have the clergy who are sort of the administrators of the doctrine, you know, when it became institutionalized. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, I just... Uh, what is it they <laughs> I, I were mean, encountering I think in the remote I past? I think there's
1: a lot of... I think there's a lot to what you're, you're describing there because, you know, it's going to be born out of experience uh, and, and any sort of, you know, non-mundane experience, you know, to, to an ancient person. They're going to have to try to process that in some way, just like we would if, if, we, if we had some experience today that just really doesn't conform to our perception of reality. Well... I had the experience, so now I have to process it somehow. And again, that's where this paranormal, you know, category, you know, comes in. So I, no, I, I think you're, I think you're largely correct there. That that this is just sort of how, how things operated. You know, as, as far as like getting, you know, contacting that other reality that just isn't quite conform to what I'm used to. Uh, you mentioned that the shaman, and there were a lot of religions, yeah, that that you had to. There would, there would be a, a, a person that uh, was either perceived as being able to or would attempt to, uh, you know, contact and converse and, you know, otherwise, you know, mediate uh, between the rest of the people and, you know, this this presence or this, this phenomena this thing, this event, so on and so forth. And some people did that, you know, because... That, that put them in a position of power and authority over other people, but there were other people I think who you know we'd have to say that they they were serious about it. You know they were they were genuine about it. Uh, you know all all faiths have this. How do we how do we tap into the other side? Because the other side's going to going to know things, going to have knowledge that we don't, and, and chances are they some, somebody from the other side would be able to, to solve our problem. Uh, answer our question that kind of thing and, and a lot of that really uh, is necessitated and driven by uh, again some experience whether it's like in the story of biblical theology you know god condescending to to come to humanity and reveal something about himself and then you know meeting with prophets and so on and so forth or having them write something down for posterity or you know if it's if it's some other way that it gets expressed in a, in a different religion but yeah I'd, I think you're largely on the right track there.
0: Okay. Well, the question is, what were they encountering? Who, what, who, or what were they encountering that gave them this well, first experience? Yeah. Was it always God, or was it something or some way, someone else? Well, ultimately,
1: ultimately, I think the, <laughs> here's where I get in trouble. I mean, you, you just talked about how people looked at you with, like you had two heads. Well, here, here's, here's my <laughs> example of this. Um, The biblical theology articulates a populated spiritual world. Now, we usually parse that as, well, there's God, and then there's angels, and then there's demons, and stuff like that. And and we have, I think, pretty simplistic and kind of primitive views of that. Uh, But the, the Bible actually goes a lot further than this, that... You know, the, the other side is, is filled you know with divine beings I like to use the, the phrase divine beings and and there's a, there's a variety of them there, there's a hierarchy there they, they have they're differentiated by what they are and and you know powers and, and things like that and so you know you I would say that behind these religious you know episodes and stories you can have contact with any number of uh, of, of different, you know, divine beings. So I, I don't know that there's a way that we can really get down further, drill down further into that. But I don't think it has to be just just one or two. I, I think that's that's sort of a, kind of a wishful, you know, I, I idea that's going on. It and there's there's competition. Let me give you an example. There are all these rules in the Old Testament against contacting the dead or contacting the other side, and commands are given in the Bible. To forbid you from doing something that you could do. In other words, there's no command that says, thou shalt not walk on water. Oh, okay, I got that one down. I'll, I'm never in danger of, of, you know, violating that one.
0: Well, you would be so, able to today, and with the temperature here, you could walk on water.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah really. But, uh, you, I mean, when, when, when the God of Israel says, look, I don't want you to do this, that, and the other thing to contact you know, other gods. It, it was a serious thing because this, the assumption is is that you could, you, you could solicit divine beings on the other side who would answer. And and you know, God is the God of the Bible is demanding loyalty on the part of his people. I'm you know I'm the only God you should serve. You come to me, I'll give you you know the information you want, or I'll give you the answer. Because frankly, if you're going to do this, you're now on my turf you're now on what we call the spiritual world or the other side and you don't know what you're going to get i do because i live here and frankly i rule it but you don't so if you do this not only are you violating the covenant loyalty that that i have with you but you're just doing something really really dangerous that you will not be able to parse correctly
0: Uh, i agree with that
1: really get burned
0: yeah, that forty-two years in the paranormal. I can certainly agree with that, uh, Mike. We're going to take a break right now, and uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno minus the band this evening, unfortunately, and our guest, Doctor Michael Heiser. We'll be right back, and you're listening to it, of course, on WON, N twelve forty a.m. in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back.
2: Family Resource Community Action is now enrolling for several training programs to help you get back on the employment track. For more information, attend an information session held each Wednesday at 3 p.m. at 55 Main Street in Woonsocket or call 401-235-6045 for more information. You can depend on us
0: for public service, Owen Radio.
1: Hi, this is Mike Logan inviting you to join me all season long for Providence College Men's Hockey right here on 1240 W-O-O-N.
0: And then we have Providence College Hockey. They skate on water, actually. So we're back with Mike Heiser, Dr. Mike Heiser, uh, expert in ancient Near Eastern languages and the ancient Near East itself. And we're talking about UFOs in the Bible, or what are generally thought of as such. Now, Mike, we were talking before the break about uh, divine beings, and uh, the, the question of the divine council, as it's called, comes up. Could you explain what that is?
1: Sure. The, the divine council is a term that really derives from Psalm 82, and it's sort of the academic term, and I would say the biblical term for the heavenly host. Uh, the the idea that, again, that God is is has a has a bureaucratic relationship with other non-human beings that he has created who serve him, or at least are supposed to. They they can rebel. Uh, again. Psalm 82 itself is pretty clear about that. But again, it's just this idea that there's, you know, this host of heaven, this this great, you know, pantheon. I mean, we Bible believers don't really like the word pantheon because it sounds like, you know, what's going on in ancient Greece or Rome. But yeah. it just refers to, again, a heavenly bureaucracy. It doesn't really say anything in particular about, you know, what kind of beings are in there and is is there one that's unique and is there you know hierarchy difference in attributes and so, so on and so forth but that's basically what the term is
0: okay well it, it of course indicate well this gets to the idea of what is a divine being let, let me throw the book at you mike here or in this case mm-hmm. the books my, my last three books <laughs> um, a long time ago when i started in this field in 1971, when I was in the seminary, the reason I wasn't ordaining because I didn't like what I was doing, but I was investigating "quote unquote" ghosts and things like this, and the stuff I was running into, you know, the old superstitions and all the stuff about, you know, the spiritualist approach, it just didn't do it. It just it just wasn't good enough, and it and it didn't it didn't answer the questions. So to make a long story short, I ended up finding out about um, quantum mechanics and the idea of the multiple worlds theory, and this is in consultation with. Certain physicists and, you know, I didn't just point myself some kind of expert here. I worked with, uh, Dr. Weiser Ryan at uh, Duke University by correspondence, all and, uh, Father, uh, John Nicola and all, all these, all these people who were, were well known at the time. So today, and this really seems to work when Ben and I deal with these things of people having problems within, in this realm. There, there seem to be, uh, many, many different uh, all, if you want to say alternate realities or alternate universes or whatever, and, and people ask me, what's the theology there? And I, to me, I mean, it seems like, uh, the creation was an explosion of divine love. I mean, why should that love be limited to one reality? M- maybe God created all possibilities, all probabilities, and the whole thing balances out into a perfect harmony. Uh, that's my eccentric, but, but, uh, I don't know, theology well, I suppose.
1: That- it's it's actually really not eccentric. It it it's
0: yeah. It's in there. Sort
1: of a qua- it's sort of a quasi gnosticism.
0: I, I mean, suppose
1: so it's it's very it's very old. I mean, it's not you know real gnosticism, but and like that's a, what like I hoped you'd say.
0: But go ahead and finish. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I don't I don't think you have to. I don't think you're driven there by by the quantum reality. And here, here's why I say that. Again, a lot of Christians and you know real conservative Jews don't parse things this way, but if Again, if they really had a handle on their biblical theology, they would they would be forced to recognize this by definition. Again, in a, in a non-Gnostic, I'll, I'll pretend I'm a non-Gnostic uh, physicist here, you know, to answer this question. In a non-Gnostic view, again, in a biblical theological view, by definition, there is only one uncreated being, and that would be God. Okay, mm-hmm. that means that everything else that the Bible itself recognizes as a spiritual entity is made of something. It has to be. Now, a non-nostic view is firmly dualistic when it Yeah, comes can, to can
0: I can I just There's... can I just interrupt? Sure. I, I beg your pardon for interrupting, but could you explain a bit what about what Gnosticism is? Because we have a lot of people stuck in traffic sure. who are frustrated enough. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gnosticism, again, there, there are different, there, there is no one Gnostic theology. The Gnostic texts don't all agree with each other, but I'll, I'll give you a, the nutshell ideas. Gnosticism po- posits that there is something that they would refer to as the true God, okay, the, this sort of divine, it, it, he's really not a person, it's more or less like an essence from which all things come. And some of, some of those things are divine beings called aeons. And in Gnostic uh, cosmology and mythology, uh, one of the aeons rebels uh, and, and decides. Her name is Sophia. She says, "I want like to be like the true God. I want to be like the ultimate deity, and I'm going to create my own other divine being." And so she does this, and that divine being turns out really badly. Uh, he's a bad guy, and that particular divine being is called the demiurge or the maker, the creator. And that, in Gnostic theology, is the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, so right away there's this friction between, you know, the, the normative, you know, Christian view and the Gnostic Christian view about what's going on with the God of the Old Testament. Well, the God of the Old Testament, again, in the Gnostic thinking, the, the, the demiurge says, well, you know, hey, I w- I'm going to do some creating myself. So I'm going to create the heavens and the earth and I'm going to create these things we call humans on them and they're going to be my slaves. You, see how this Sounds a lot like Zechariah Sitchin, by the way,
0: oh yeah, it uh, does
1: so so i'm going I'm going to make this slave race, well, Sophia is horrified. know uh, why did I ever do that? you know I, I should not have done that, and so she puts a spark of herself into the human so that the human is not just going to be a lifeless automaton slave. There, there will be hope that the human will someday realize what he and she is you know that, that they're they're they have this spark of divinity within them and so that for sal- for, for the gnostic salvation is the recognition the realization the awakening that we are divine again that, that that's a, that's in a nutshell that's the gnostic idea well if you believe that then then you're a monist because then the the true god the one that's above the maker in heaven and earth the, the way way up there true god everything that is created is part of him and he is part of it and so you have you don't have a a distinction between the creator and the created everything is is all part and parcel ultimately of one hence the term monism the bible though presents dualism that there's a firm distinction between the creator and the things that are created Mm -hmm. and so to me, again, going back, pretending I'm, I'm the quantum physicist here, and I, I have friends who are very serious Christians who are research physicists, and, and they're not troubled at all by the quantum issue.
0: Yeah, so do I. To
1: them, <laughs> it's like, well, okay, this is this is obviously the, the way God made the material world, and these things we think of as angels or other, other contingent gods, other contingent divine beings, spirits, whatever label you want to stick on them, by definition, they have to be made of something. They are part of the created order, even though we can't see them. So visibility is not a synonym for materiality. Uh, you know, and so if you look at, at things that way, and then you look, you go and look at all this stuff that, you know, you investigate as a paranormal investigator, and, you know, all this stuff that's been written, the experiences that people have had, there very well could be a, an intelligent reality or an entity or something like that behind what people say they experience. I mean that, that's very possible within a dualistic biblical worldview. That's why I said, well you don't have to be a Gnostic to really parse that. No, no. Uh, but, but a lot of, a lot of Christians and conservative views, they, they're not even at first base, you know, when it comes to that because what they're looking for is a, is a chapter and verse you know that, that says, oh, there are these paranormal entities, and here's the list. You know, that you just you, you don't get that. You have to you have to be thinking theologically with the material that the Bible does give you. Uh, and and of course, if we really believe that all truth does come from God, and the truth of the material world has to be honored, it has to be put you know on the same level, and you, we can't dismiss it. And so something like like quantum mechanics and quantum uh, you know, theory, quantum realities, can't just be done away with. You have to do something with
0: that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, say, I, I know what you mean. I, I just, I, I, and I am in seventh heaven having this conversation, but I don't want to lose some of our readers. Uh, readers, uh, there's, There speaks the writer. I don't want to lose some of our listeners here on this. But, uh, but I would get back to the question. Uh, see, the thing with the Divine Council is that it is, it is popularly interpreted uh, and it's not. I suppose it's, it's it's interpreted in the academic realm because of the way academicians are trained. You know, they learn from yeah. others who believe a certain way, and that's how they. That kind of goes that way. But it's it's it looks as though, and even in Hebrew, it lo- to my lousy Hebrew, it looks as though you've got God talking to other divine beings who are gods themselves. Because these are all relative terms, I suppose. Uh, you know, yeah, they're Luke labels. Quirrell?
1: So, what, I mean, what, what, what,
0: who is he talking to in this divine council? Even if it's a poetic device of some kind used by the psalmist, um, what, what is the concept that's really being... I'll tell you what, what, what we were taught in the seminary when we even dealt with it. It was that you know God is expressing his dominion over all creation as summed up by these nature forces and all different stuff that is sitting around this council in, in this uh, anthropomorphic form, the human form, so to speak. I mean, yeah, well,
1: I'd be impressed if you ever got to Psalm eighty-two in seminary. Uh, yeah, I, yeah,
0: I actually was rather <laughs> impressed. That was ten well, years in the seminary, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Uh, before before I let me interrupt you one more time. I believe Ben is sure, on the line. Ahead. My our, our co-host. Yes,
2: I, I was attempting to break into the conversation, and it didn't really work. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Well, the <laughs> voice was, of Ben, folks from the great beyond. So,
2: well, ben, no, do you have no, a question
0: actually. for for Mike, or what are your thoughts on this?
2: I did, but then you asked it. <laughs>
0: But, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, we uh, we know each other. So I, did, as a, uh, I did
2: come up with a few a few questions while I was uh, remotely viewing the show via the internet on my phone.
1: So okay. I'm sorry if this sounds <laughs>
2: sketchy. I'm coming to you live from um, the uh, commuter rail from Boston. So <laughs> all right. So I had a quick question. This kind of takes away from. I don't know if you guys touched on this earlier because I kind of missed the first 15 minutes. So um. Did you guys touch
0: upon the theme of the sky god or no? Uh, yeah, I get into the thing of um, why is it always the sky gods. It might might kind of explain this where people are not. Uh, I don't know if, if you would well, consider that the good enough. Well, the sea
1: gods, you know, and the, the under-the-earth gods, the mountain gods. It's not just the sky well, gods. Well, my, my point we...
0: to Mike was that people must have experienced something or someone somehow, somewhere... And, uh, you know, I pointed out the, the vast stretch of, uh, unknown prehistory when there could have been all kinds of things going on. So, uh, that, that's what we kind of get into a little bit.
2: Although, I'll be honest with you.
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ben.
2: Oh, no. I was also going to say, I was listening to, um, Michael's notion of the, uh, what's, what's the good word for this? Um, like a cosmic hierarchy or something like that. Right. So, I, I had the I wrote down the point that it's a very hard thing to explain and it's using non, it's trying to explain non-human things with human words.
0: Yes, I think that's a good point. What say you, Mike?
1: Well, the, this does get into the, the question you asked before uh, we were joined here. That is, it, it, to a lot of people, this sounds polytheistic.
0: Yeah, but having to do that, with many gods, yeah.
1: Right. The, the reason for that is because we have our ear has been trained to look at the word G-O-D as a word that is equatable and only equatable with a very specific set of attributes. And so if you have more than one of them, therefore you must be saying that we have a whole bunch of gods that are competing for position and jockeying for power and all, you know, again, like the Greek and Roman, you know, mythology thing. That, that's a misunderstanding of, of Elohim, the Hebrew word Elohim. Ah, uh,
0: dear old Elohim, yeah.
1: And here's why. It, it, it's really not that hard to parse, but it's one of those things that doesn't get examined because as soon as you start to examine it, you're kicked out of seminary.
0: <laughs> Tell me about
1: or, it. Or, or you're <laughs> discouraged you know, from doing so, but it, it's really not that difficult. The biblical writer now think about this, these are Jews, okay? The biblical writers use the term Elohim of four or five different things. Right. They use it of the God of Israel, they use it of beings that, that are called Shadim in Deuteronomy thirty two, seventeen, which usually gets translated demon. They use it of the departed spirit of the deceased Samuel in First Samuel twenty-eight thirteen, mm-hmm. depending on how you understand the first couple of verses of Genesis thirty-two and what it's referencing in the past, it could be used of angels, and it's also used of these other beings in this council of Psalm eighty-two. So you got five different things. Now here's the here's the point: if a Jew, a, a biblical writer, an Israelite, thought that the word Elohim could properly only describe a singular being with a very specific, unique set of attributes, why would he ever do that? Why would he ever use the term of four different things in addition to the God of Israel? He very plainly does. So that tells us that he's not looking at the term Elohim as attribute-driven. It means something else. It, is, it does not mean a specific set of attributes the way we look at the, the letters G, O, and D. What Elohim simply means, and the reason you'd use it of five different things, is Elohim is the word you would use to describe a being that lives on the other side, in the other reality, in the spiritual world. It's what I call a term of address. In other words, it gives me the address. It gives me the location of of a being. Not the human realm, the other realm. Now, over in that other realm... You have lots of Elohim running around. One of them is what I like to call species unique. That is the God (laughs) of Israel. Because the, the biblical writers claim that that particular Elohim created all the other ones. That particular Elohim is absolutely, utterly unique. You have rank and power in that other realm. Just like in our realm, we have human. Well, humans differ widely in ability and widely in their human-to-human hierarchical relationships. It's the same description put over in the spiritual world. So the biblical understanding of Elohim is not the understanding that we give to G-O-D. This is why we're so confused. We do not parse the Bible like an ancient Semite would we parse it like a 17th century European Exactly, word. yeah. And, and that's when the term monotheism was invented. I don't, I don't think monotheism says enough about the biblical use of Elohim. I don't really think any of our words do. I don't think monolatry is adequate. I don't think polytheism certainly is adequate. I don't think monotheism is adequate. What, what an Israelite believed was that Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. You have to describe what they believed. Not you can't just put a word on it.
0: Well, no. And, well,
1: and it's very confusing, you know, for for us who've grown up in in the Western European Judeo Christian Christian traditions, to to think like this. It's it's foreign to us. It's a foreign context.
0: Well, still, I think Ben has a point uh, that, that we're dealing with things that, as we often say on the show, re- really our language is not up to actually describing. But, but. Um, the, Right, the they are they're might...
1: trying to order, they're trying to order and describe a realm
0: that they're not part of. They're trying to describe so, the indescribable.
1: Right, they're trying to describe the indescribable. And so, again, if, if, you're, if you put this in the context, let's say, of a, of a conservative or a high view of scripture inspiration, you know, God is, I, I, don't, I don't believe that in the doctrine of inspiration that God gives the writers every word and all that kind of stuff, but, but they're getting some kind of help to use their language, the vehicle of their human language, which is inadequate to describe what they're being asked to describe. And they're they're doing the best they can. They're giving it their best shot. They're using human verbiage to describe this indescribable thing. And so it falls short, but yet, it is still useful. I mean, you, you you can get somewhere with the vocabulary.
0: Well, the problem, Mike, and Ben may be able to amplify this, is that in ancient Hebrew, as you know, because this is your field, uh, there are no vowels. Uh, words run together in manuscripts, and we don't even know what the original words of the Bible actually were. I've actually seen. Well, I,
1: I think I think that's kind of an uber skepticism. There, it, you don't. I mean, you, they don't need vowels today. I mean, if you pick up an Israeli yeah, but you don't have vowels. right? But if you an unpointed text, a lot of a lot of Israeli newspapers don't use vowels or even websites or anything like that. Well, they simply don't use words. vowels today. But what what they have is they have you know an, an inductive knowledge of their language, and so they can they can process it without. When I teach Hebrew online, I I, I discourage people from from looking at the vowels and memorizing the vowel forms unless they're important. Because it, you know, it, I, I try to tell people, look you, you can do. The, the reason a seven-year- old kid could come over to your seminary class and take Hebrew and blow you all away is because he doesn't need the vowels. You're sitting there trying to memorize all this stuff and it's just driving you nuts. You don't need it. But the oldest manuscripts we have, the words are divided. I mean, you, you, don't, you don't get this endless string of oh, where do we divide everything now? We're, this is a hopeless endeavor. The Dead Sea Scrolls have word division. In them, you, you just have to observe the the, the spacing, um, you know, So I, I think I think that's a, a little bit of a hermeneutics of despair uh, when it when it comes to this. It's actually more true with the Greek New Testament. When oh well, oh, that, that's the,
0: even worse. Uh, yeah, yeah, I hate the, to rush this along the here, Greek Mike. Greek
1: but stuff was like that.
0: You know, I hate to rush us along, but we're burning up the hour here, and I want I want to give Ben a chance. Ben, do you have any further questions here? Because I wanted to get it, to get into another well, to, to a related question here.
2: Well, like I said. Uh, before but michael already sort of answered this like i came in half like halfway through the show so i missed most of the stuff yeah but i was um i don't know if you touched upon this either like it seems as if the being in the new testament is different than the being in the torah would you agree
0: i actually had a a, old testament professor who, who said that he it was hard to believe the god of the old testament was the god of the new testament
1: well, it's hard to it's hard for me to believe then that that New Testament professor is looking at the use of the Old Testament in the well, New he was Testament.
0: an Old Testament professor. <laughs> yeah, well, well see, the he, problem here, he, Mike, is that this stuff was well, translated me, by before, believers.
1: Well, but before we before we we go off on translation, the the fun, the premise is fundamentally not true, and here's what I mean by that. I'll give you just a couple of examples: the divine warrior imagery of the Old Testament. You know, God the, the the great warrior fighting battles and all this stuff. That gets applied to Jesus in Ephesians, it gets applied to Jesus in Revelation.
0: Yeah. I mean, just wow. in,
1: in some cases just point blank right down the list. I mean, there are lots of motifs that people assume this isn't what Jesus is like that get applied to Jesus in the New Testament. So I don't I don't accept the premise from the get go. So I, I think you know, he must have been a Lutheran. I mean, because No, not quite. But
0: no, no, I get your point. But, but but let's try and get back on. On uh, this, this is all great. I love talking to people about this. But let's let's get back to uh, I guess suppose you might say flying objects in the Old Testament. So do you? Uh, the, the trouble is, and I have this trouble with, with the super skeptics all the time. Not that I'm saying you're a super skeptic, but you know they weren't there. And they say that, well, you couldn't have experienced that, you know, it must have been this. You know, I mean, they weren't there. I was there. And I think I'm a relatively intelligent person, and relatively well-educated. Um, so I guess we could say the same about ourselves in reference to ancient occurrences. we How do we – is there any way – there isn't any way we could know exactly what occurred – uh, to prompt the story of the flaming chariot that hauled Isaac, uh, Elijah away, or the Enoch stories, of course, most of them which are apocryphal. You see, you know make, what I'm saying at. Yeah,
1: I mean, we, we, have, we have to make a choice. We can either impose a, a, a 20th and 21st century speculation about extraterrestrial travelers onto the ancient text or we can allow them to use the words that were at their disposal to tell us.
0: Well, why do they Again, have to they, be extraterrestrials?
1: Well, it, it, it doesn't. But the, the, my, my point is is that they they had a wide range of vocabulary that if, if they were seeing something that didn't look like a throne or didn't look like a chariot, they have the vocabulary to describe those things. But they choose to say chariot. They choose to say horse. They knew what a horse looked like. They okay. They they chose to say throne with a pedestal, with a four faced cherubim underneath. You know, with with a, a chair with wheels. Every element of Ezekiel's vision. We 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 do get some help with Ezekiel and Daniel seven. Uh, every element there. Is actually known from pictorial carvings of the period of Ezekiel. The Babylonian, that's where Ezekiel is in the book. He's, he's sitting there by the river Kivar in Babylon, saying, Well, you know, we got our butts kicked in the exile. What are we doing here? I mean, that's where he is. And every one of those elements is known. Now, I don't, I actually think, you know, my, my own view of this, and I didn't invent it, I think what's going on there is what we would call uh, astral theology or astral uh, symbolism. It has to do with the Zodiac, because the four faces of the cherubim are the four cardinal points of the Babylonian Zodiac. I mean, I don't think that's coincidental. I mean, there's something going on there beyond your typical sort of Christian seminary, evangelical reading of the text, but we, we have a fundamental decision to make. Either we're going to let them communicate to us with their words, knowing they could have picked other words, or we're just going to let our imaginations you know, win the day with that. And I'm very cautious. I I like to take them at face value, even though a lot of my, what I think they're talking about doesn't really conform to what people would be comfortable with, you know, who are, again, conservative Jews or Christians. But be that as it may, again, I I try to give the ancient writer the benefit of the doubt.
0: All right, well, that's a lot of doubt in my opinion. I mean, God bless them. But Ben, any thoughts?
1: Uh, No, I'm all...
2: It
0: out. All right, I just, I just, uh, <laughs> with the greatest respect, Mike, I just, I just think it's not good enough. Um, I mean, it, I'm thinking of the history of UFO sightings, regardless of what they were or, or whatever. Uh, people in the 19th century described them as airships, and people, you know, who because they didn't know anything well, about I, uh, airplanes. I think
1: a divine. I think, I think someone could be describing some sort of, you know, otherworldly encounter. I don't have any trouble with that. Uh, what, what I'm saying, though, is for us to, to have to, to have what we feel like is, is the answer, and the answer is something that uh, you know we would parse as extraterrestrials. When none of the texts have have any reference to a planet beyond Saturn, you know, in, in terms of a lot of these texts, they don't describe the, the deities, you know, in, in the sort of craft that would have to be flight worthy for that kind of thing. I mean, you you don't get interplanetary travel with internal combustion engine engines they know what fire is that's what they're seeing that's what they're looking at you know if it wasn't fire they'd have to come up with something else you know I, again I, I I just try to give the writers the benefit of the doubt because if I wrote something I would hope that a thousand years from now somebody would would give me the, the same benefit of the doubt
0: okay all right Mike uh, it's uh, I don't always agree with you here and I just think it's a great conversation I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: You don't have to. No, no, I
0: know. But uh, why don't you just take a minute here, uh, just about all we have, and uh, tell people again about your books and uh, your websites and uh, where they can share more about you.
1: If they want to find out more about the facade and the special edition, they go to www.facade the book.com. And my homepage is drmsh.com.
0: Very good. I really recommend the facade. It's a great book. Really enjoyed it. Mike, thank, thank you. you very much. Ben, any uh, parting words here? Uh,
2: well, I'll be home in about half an hour. Okay. <laughs> next, I will be with you live on Sunday, next Sunday. Yes.
0: Very Monday, good. Excellent. Sunday. Good. Mike, thanks yeah. thanks a lot. Uh, probably a touch off the air. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I'd like to continue it. All
1: right. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay. I'm uh, really delighted to have Ben with us. And, uh, okay, I certainly wanted to... Um, uh, Thank again our guest uh, Dr. Michael Heiser and check out his websites uh, when you uh, when you can. Uh, certainly BehindTheParanormal.com dot com is our website and we have over 450 pod, uh, almost 450 free podcasts of shows from uh, CBS and from here uh, WON and uh, some online stuff we've done and of course the Rendlesham Forest UFO event series that we had in 2010 2011. You can also buy my books on those sites. Uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter, and you can apply to become a reporter at the site. Uh, so, um, we uh, Ben, uh, if you have any parting thoughts, um, I'm sorry, he's gone. He's gone. Okay. Well, he'll be again. He'll be with us on days off. But uh, if you can call in from the train like that, that'll be great. Uh, so anyway, next week, February fourth, there will be an open line show. Uh, to once again plunge into that ever-growing stack of emails that Ben and I have on all questions of the paranormal from different different realms, and it should be interesting. And on our CBS Radio edition on February 3rd, uh, Ben and I will host an open line show. Uh, that can be heard in uh, Boston, Seattle, Detroit, and Pittsburgh, or online at radio.com. And uh, you can get to the uh, w, um, uh, OMC Detroit site, and you, and you can listen to the show through that. Uh, we leave you this evening with some advice from Scottish author and philosopher Thomas Carlyle. A loving heart is the beginning of all knowledge. And uh, I don't know if we're quite done yet here. We have another. Is that a call for us? No, it's the FBI. It's the FBI. I want to know what's going on. Yeah, okay. So anyway, um, I want to thank you for sailing with us on our great cosmic journey. And we will see you next time. Uh, you've got about a minute and a half. we got about a minute and a half. Okay. Thanks a lot for telling me. Okay. Well, no problem. No problem. It's a good thing I'm not by myself. Uh, again, we uh, we had our guest this evening on the subject of the ancient near recent, uh, Michael Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser. Certainly, uh, I think, certainly a man of, of faith, uh, but I think that there are other ways to interpret certain things. And uh, I don't know whether that's it's anybody's guess. And as we always say on the show, everything you know is wrong, which means you really don't know anything. And uh, I think that uh, one thing I really didn't bring up with, Mike, was uh, the whole notion of epistemology, the, the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. And I, I really think that when you get down to it, we really don't know anything for sure about our world, about ourselves, um, about uh, our planet even. Um, and really, very often, scientific laws, quote-unquote, have been challenged and uh, and and brought down from time to time. Uh, it really all is a matter of, of faith. Uh future guests will include a number of interesting people certainly. Uh and we always uh encourage you to visit behindtheparanormal.com to see uh guests who are past, present and future and find out more about Ben and myself and again to get those free podcasts. So we will see you next week here on Behind Return the Paranormal to this Radio at 12:40 a.m. 167 well. hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.